I don't know about you, but I love fireplaces. They're just something that feels right. Mainly in the winter months, about sitting in a comfortable chair with your feet propped up, your socks, those thick, cheesy, tacky socks you won't wear in public, but you'll wear in your living room, snuggled onto your toes, enjoying the company of people you love, all while the beautiful picture of a bright flame flickering in the background. I enjoy fire pits outside, too. However, as Ian is chuckling in the background, I am the most paranoid parent when it comes to children around a fire pit. I find myself as a constant guard watch every time my children get closer to those flames. I think I do slightly overreact, though, just truth in advertising. You can ask Julie or others who've witnessed this problem of mine, but my fear of them getting burned just seems to outweigh any ability for me to enjoy the fire pit. You know, fire brings with it all sorts of reactions and responses depending on who we are and what purpose that fire brings. Now, fire is certainly not a new phenomenon. For decades, we've witnessed on television scores of acreage and trees even homes that have been burned down to the ground in places like California. We've actually seen some of the worst forest fires in our country's history just in the last decade or so. Fire has also been a part of our human existence, even in the most ancient of civilizations, to be used for most common things that you and I may take for granted today, things like cooking food, staying warm, making various tools and jewelry and weapons out of things like metal and gold and silver. In fact, the Bible paints a fairly colorful spectrum when it comes to the imagery of fire, which gives this familiar phenomenon of combustion rich meaning. So here's just a sampling. In Israel's worship, both in the tabernacle and in the temple, like we've read about in Malachi the last few weeks, fire consumed the sacrificial offerings and purified objects in worship. Likewise, that's why God rejected some priests in pure worship, like Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, the high priest. We read about in Leviticus chapter 10 that then when they offered fire, it was rejected and they were killed because they put strange or unauthorized fire on his altar. You don't have to read very far between Genesis to Deuteronomy. If you start a Bible reading plan next year, you'll pick up on this theme fairly quickly that fire in Scripture is also associated with appearances of God himself. Uh, so a more technical term that theological uh, eggheads use sometimes is called a theophany, a manifestation of God visibly to people. So some examples you might be familiar with. God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Exodus 3 verse 2. God also appeared to his people with thunder and lightning when he made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, 
We also read in Exodus 19.18, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And of course, the wilderness years, when Israel had basically abandoned their God. How did God bring them back and how did God lead them? Well, the scriptures tell us that he led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Fire is also used in scripture to depict something of God vindicating, uh, revealing and defending his unique sovereignty and holiness in the world. Think of the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 18 who went toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal. The Bible says that he called upon God in prayer and that the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, fire was a common imagery and visible manifestation of both God's presence, but also the type of worship he would accept at his temple. So we shouldn't be surprised as we who are Christians who are part of the new covenant, which Hebrew says is a better covenant, are still called and commanded to offer up acceptable worship with hearts of reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, verses 28 to 29. However, worship offered to God, who is a consuming fire, also implies that impure, irreverent, and false worship will be judged. More broadly speaking, really any rebellion, any distortion of teaching his law, any willful disobedience to his righteous laws will be held accountable by the Lord of hosts. That's why fire in scripture can also be a sign of God's righteous indignation and just wrath upon the unrepentant and ungodly. So in the Old Testament, one of the most clearly revealed passages that deal with what God does to those who cause division in the camp. It says in number 16 that 250 men were recorded as having been consumed by fire from the Lord surrounding Korah's rebellion. In the New Testament, John the Baptist's ministry, who was the forerunner for the Messiah, who would prepare the way, John says that his ministry would be eclipsed by one who would have a baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. Jesus, who is this Messiah, whose eyes, Revelation says, burn with a flame of fire, spoke consistently and clearly about the dangers 
of not heeding God's warnings about sin and God's terrifying just judgment. Jesus basically told his followers this, if you want to be ready for God's judgment, you need to get radical with your sin now. If you want to get ready for God's judgment, you need to get radical with your sin now. He said these sobering words in Mark 9, verses 43 to 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, as you read throughout the New Testament, from Matthew to Revelation, God tells us very clearly that judgment is coming upon the whole world. The Bible's crystal clear. It's not trying to hide anything from anybody. An eternal punishment is reserved for all those who do not believe the gospel. For those who are still dead in their sins. As Brother Allen read Matthew 25, there are only two people that are going to stand before Jesus on the final day. You're either a sheep or a goat. You're either to his right and called blessed or to his left and you are cursed. One says, welcome into the joy of your master. The other says, I never knew you. Get out of my presence and now receive the wrath of God. So, fire is at the very least an enjoyable experience in your living room at Christmas time. But according to God's holy word, it, it actually has a much deeper and eternally richer meaning the more we look at it together. So this morning, in our current sermon series, we pick up again on this rich imagery of fire once again. So please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. This morning, we're going to cover a large portion of Scripture, which will stretch from Malachi 2.17 and I had to just kind of make a little last-minute audible because as you're preparing a sermon, sometimes you realize, ah, my chapter division was a slightly off here. But we're going to take it all the way to Malachi 4, verse 3. You'll see why shortly. Malachi 2.17 to Malachi 4, verse 3. And that means our last sermon on the 20th in Malachi will only cover three verses. And all God's people said, <laughs> right, but that's not today. Not today. Here we go. If you're looking in the Pew Bibles or the Chair Bibles, it's 467 and 468. If this is your first time with us, let me uh, buckle your seatbelt and kind of catch you up to speed on where we're at. Malachi is an ancient prophecy that was given by God through one of his messengers, whose name is Malachi. 
It was an oracle, Malachi 1, verse 1. What's an oracle? Well, it's a burden. It's an urgent message from God to his people, full of truth, warning, and hope. But specifically to his covenant people, the post-exilic people of the nation of Israel. After God's people were brought back to their land, after being in captivity in Babylon for several, or really seven decades, uh, they were exiled. They were released to go back to their land around 539 B.C. And decades passed. Sparks of revival and change had happened, but things really never changed permanently. The fervor of God's people, the faithfulness of God's people, slowly deteriorated. So in Malachi 1, God reminds his dull-hearted people of his free and sovereign choice to love sinners like them by his unfathomable grace and mercy. And to our amazement, this is actually the grounds by which God's going to correct them and challenge them. When they are questioning his love, God says, you have not even scratched the surface on how much I have loved you. That's Malachi 1, verses 2 to 5. Uh, their drift spiritually had become such a stronghold in the people's lives, they began to be suspicious of God. Didn't feel like they could really trust him. And it was only exasperated. It was made worse. It was perpetuated by the ungodly leaders that were supposed to be examples to the people. These were the priests of the Lord's temple. They were basically the paid worship leaders, if you will, in Israel. And, and we saw how God dealt with them in Malachi 1, verse 6, all the way to Malachi 2, verse 9. Now, why does God speak such stern and hard words to these leaders? We learned last week, if you are in any form of leadership, in particular spiritual leadership, you are held to a stricter judgment. So the priests go, so the people go. So the pastors go, so will the congregation go. We see that God cares how he is represented, and so he cares about those who are leading his people. So what happened? Well, really in Malachi 1 and 2, we see that God's people were largely faithless. They were faithless in their ministry, and they were faithless in their marriages. So sloppy worship and frivolous divorce just ran rampant all in their community. The name of God, which should be great among his people's eyes, had been drugged through the mud of unrepentant sin and religious hypocrisy. So, up until this point, God has really turned on the lights in every room. He's switching on every light. The roaches are fleeing. They're being exposed. And the priests are being called out. Marriages that were ripped apart are called to be healed by God's original purpose for marriage. However, the people in Malachi's day were also a very discouraged people because they had envisioned because of the prophecies in Isaiah, Ezekiel, 
and the minor prophets, really, as you continue reading, that things were going to get exponentially better. Remember Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, that many of us put on magnets and such? Good plans, plans to prosper, plans for healing, plans for hope. They were optimistic about the future. But what happened? Well, the land of paradise that they envisioned from the prophets was actually a painful, everyday reality. Instead of a superior power and a kingdom, they were fairly weak. Instead of love and unity, there was hatred and divisiveness, and we'll see this morning even other grotesque sins. For the Israelites, their New Year's resolution was a total letdown. They were super discouraged. And so in Malachi, as we've been studying, there are a list of about six disputes between God and his people through Malachi. And so now we're going to answer the question this morning is, here's the people of Israel. They've been rebuked. They've been exposed. They've been challenged. And they're now questioning God. They're uncertain about what the future is going to look like because so far they're pretty disappointed. How does God respond to their uncertainty? He responds to them with a promise. Multiple promises that were still to be fulfilled. That's where we're all in Malachi. Follow with me. Starting in Malachi 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God? justice. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and then as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children, of Jacob are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. 
But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And therefore, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before of him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. Here, starting in Malachi 2, verse 17, we pick up on the next dispute, the next complaint Uh, Almost somewhat like a lawyer prosecuting someone who might be guilty on the stand. Here this next dispute again is between Israel and the Lord through Malachi. This dispute, like the previous ones, reveal the sad, super discouraging spiritual condition of where the people of Israel were and how they viewed God. In chapter 1, it was God's love that they put on the stand and were suspicious of. In chapter 2, we see now it is God's justice that they're questioning and putting on trial. And by both statement, pretty much grumbling, and a question, they had called God's holy, righteous, and loving character into disrepute. 
But why? Did God do something wrong? Well, apparently evil, immorality, and injustice had ran its course amongst the people. Not only was it evil and injustice running rampant, but there were people divorcing their wives for just any old reason, offering sloppy worship at the temple. In fact, if you drop down to Malachi 3, verse 5, you'll see specifically what some of these injustices were in their lives. He mentions these covenant breakers, these covenant violators. He mentions sorcerers, those who practice false demonic worship. Adulterers, those who are faithless spouses. Those who swear falsely, these are faithless witnesses who committed perjury, lying under oath, disobeying God's clear command to not bear false witness. But not only that, they were taking advantage of the most weak and vulnerable in their community. He mentions right there, oppressing the hired worker in his wages the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner. In other words, the ruly and the proud, those who thought they could just sweep things under the rug, thought they were getting away with it by taking advantage of those who had no voice in the community. I mean, beloved, Israel's house was a mess. Have you ever walked into your house after maybe your kids have kind of hold down the fort while mom and dad go on a date and it looks like a train wreck, maybe that was only me when I was a teenager. It was chaos. Israel was messed up. Chaos was the norm. Faithlessness was a virtue. So the people began to look around at their lives and they remember God's promises of a better land, of better worship, of better rulers, and they began to go, maybe God isn't just. Maybe God really just doesn't care. Maybe he takes bribes. Maybe he rules arbitrarily. Because evil had flooded the community and it didn't seem like God was doing anything about it. All hope of any truth they had ever learned from their children's ages up, of God punishing the wicked and rewarding the righteous seemed to dissipate from their minds like the morning dew on your grass. Have you ever been there before? You ever had someone treat you unjustly and they got away with it? Ever been taken advantage of, misrepresented, lied about, and there was no justice towards these crimes? Have you ever been reading the newspaper or watching the nightly news and you hear these stories of the most evil, sadistic crimes that people commit? Have you ever just asked yourself, how have they gotten away with it for so long? Brothers and sisters, the question of why does evil seem to flourish 
in a world ruled by a good and sovereign God is a question that people have been asking as old as sin has been in the world. But I want to remind us this morning the same thing Israel needed to be reminded of in Malachi's day. There is always more going on in the world than what you and I can see with our eyes. Just because evil seems to win the day, have the upper hand for a time, it doesn't mean that our God is somehow cruel, unaware, indifferent to our pain. Or that God is unjust towards evil that is done in the world. Some have allowed pain and injustice to push them from God. So much that they sound like Friedrich Nietzsche in the 19th century, a German philosopher who literally tried to persuade people with his junk. God is dead. He must be dead because he's not doing anything about it. Beloved, our God, whether you can see it with your eyes or not, is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of heaven's armies. He is the just judge of all the earth. And our God will do what is right always at his appointed time. So how did God respond to their complaint? He responded with a promise. This leads to the first point in our outline. Point number one, God will deal with all sin and no one will escape his judgment. God will deal with all sin and no one will escape his judgment. I want you to notice in Malachi 3, verses 1 and following, how many times the word will comes up. Okay, I'm going to read it emphatically so you catch what God is saying to their cry of injustice. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against, and then he lists all the covenant breakers. Brothers and sisters, hear that this morning. What you and I cannot see with our eyes does not negate what God has promised he will do. You need to hear that. Christ's own disciples questioned 
why Jesus was on this earth. Jesus' loudest disciple told Jesus, forbid it, Lord, that you should go to the cross. What have you done? If Israel in his day questioned the certainty of God's promises, if Jesus' own disciples do, remember Jesus' own words to the disciples in John 16, I think it's verse 12. I have many things to tell you, but you cannot even bear them now. Brothers and sisters, don't let uncertainties in your life discount the promises of God over your life. See, the Lord continues to say, I will send one day a messenger and he will prepare the way for my purifying and punishing fire that will bring forth revival and retribution. Verse 1, the Lord speaks about coming again to his temple, the ordained of house of worship that had been an utter mockery. And in verse 3, what does he say he will do? He will purify. He will cleanse the sons of Levi, the priesthood, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. In other words, God had sent Malachi, whose name means what? My messenger. It really is kind of a preview, a foretaste of another messenger sent from God who would one day come with a similar ministry to Malachi's. However, this messenger's ministry would have a greater eschatological fulfillment. You might say, whoa, Blake, what does that word mean? I've only got one shot of uh, extra espresso in my coffee. What, what exactly do you mean by eschatological? Well, it just simply means the study of last things or end times. This messenger is going to be a significant messenger because of what he fulfills in redemptive history. And it's at this point when God brings into the world this messenger of the covenant, he says, to prepare the way that God is going to clean house. In about three or four months, we will take off our winter clothes and we will probably begin that annual tradition of spring cleaning. The rubber gloves will come out of the closet. The dusters will be purchased at Home Depot. The shelves will get stocked with Mr. Clean. And if you're old school, Clorox bleach. It's really bad for you. I wouldn't do that, but anyway. The smell of bleach will soon fill your kitchen. Mama will be happy and all will be well. Friends, when this messenger comes, the Lord said he would come like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. When he comes to clean house, he misses no spots on what he intends to clean. Here we see two images of what this purifying and revival house cleaning will be like. We first see the imagery of a, a fire as assay process that would consist of subjecting base metals and minerals to high amounts of heat in a furnace or a crucible. Uh, this would be for the purposes of separating the metals. 
the good from the bad, the valuable from the non-valuable, so that the object would come out in its purity of silver or gold and then be weighed for its value. And the second imagery Malachi brings to us is of the imagery of the fuller's soap. A fuller was a trade in those days that would be basically a trade where a piece of cloth, whether that was a blanket, a quilt, or a shirt, whatever they were going to use it for, they were going to purify and cleanse all the oily and gummy substances that would be found on the fiber. So after it was cleaned with this type of soap, basically it would come out bleach white, squeaky clean, white so much that it could blind you. These two images taken together, the Lord promised that a day would come where he would cleanse the house of worship and those who lead it of the mud and mire that his wayward people had tolerated for so long. This messenger is also talked about at the end of Malachi. So flip over to Malachi 4 real quick. In Malachi 4 verses 5 In 6, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, he's identified as Elijah, who we know is a prophet from many years before this. Or he would come in the power like Elijah and prepare the way for reform and renewal. Who is the messenger? We'll come back on December 20th. I don't want to take all my sermon notes away from that sermon because I won't have anything to say. So come back to December 20th and we'll learn more about who this messenger and Elijah-like presence is. But I do want you to note this for today. This purifying work would not destroy his people's lives. This purifying work would come to make it clean. To make wrong things right. To take what has been corroded by sin and worldliness and give it a heavenly aroma. So the finished product is a precious object in the refiner's eyes. Brothers and sisters, when God sends trials into your life, it is not to destroy your faith. When he sends trials into your life and justice is not carried out, it's to refine your faith. Jesus told Peter, Peter, you will deny me. You will reject me. Peter says, forbid it, Lord, that I would ever do that. He says, take heart, Peter. Even though Satan desires to sift you like wheat, I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Brothers and sisters, when the Lord brings fiery trials, he locks you in to that fiery furnace. It is not to harm you, 
but it is to melt off the dross of everything that does not please him in your life. Peter says it this way to those who have been through all sorts of trials in his day. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is no fiery trial that you nor I will ever walk through that our God has not already pre-programmed in advance. He's already got the volume turned up at just the right heat to purify and refine our faith. Our faith, he says, that is more precious to God than gold. You see, the trial might be painful, sometimes very painful, been taken advantage of by those who are in authority over you. A spouse leave you. A church reject you. But the trial will not destroy you. And what will be the outcome? A purified and precious faith. The salvation of your souls. Maybe a good challenge for you and I today in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about 2020. It's the buzzword of everyone's minds. And I think it's pretty safe to say that everyone's probably grumbled or complained and called 2020 the year of the eye roll or endless disappointments. And you're just kind of waiting to get over it. Let's just get done with it. Maybe instead of complaining about 2020, ask yourself, how has God refined your faith in him in 2020? Instead of murmuring about all the ways that you don't like certain decisions others have made, ask yourself this question. How has God refined your love for people that you disagree with and have let you down? Take time this Christmas 
to journal all the ways the Lord has used hardships to refine your faith in him and your love for other people. That's God's gift to you. It's God's gift to me. I think year 2020 can be used of God in one of the sweetest ways of him purifying his church in the world, in particular here in America. God is always doing more than you and I can see with our eyes. But what about evil and injustice? Will anyone just slip away guilt-free from God's justice in the end? Well, God will purify and refine his covenant people, the people he calls to himself, the people that he's forgiven and loved and chosen and promised to keep. But he will also deal with the unrepentant and the ungodly who do not submit to him. Look at Malachi 3, verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Look at Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Beloved, a day is coming where every mouth will be stopped. Every knee will bow and God will open the mouths of the naysayers and they will declare Jesus Christ is Lord. No one escapes this judgment. Total and complete justice is coming. The New Testament refers to this day of judgment in its final eschatological, there's your cool buzzword today, In fulfillment in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15, we read, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Beloved, there is always more going on in the world than you and I can see with our eyes. Evil and injustice may prevail, but it will only prevail for a time. God's justice always has the final word. God will deal with all sin, and no one will escape his judgment. Now, after hearing about this future day that was still to come, the Lord needed to address another spiritual cancer because he loves you and he loves me and he tells us what we need to hear, not merely what we want to hear. What was this spiritual cancer? What was another light that the Lord turned on in his temple? This time it was the wallets 
and the piggy bank of the people that needed to be addressed. Look in Malachi 3, verses 6 to 7. The Lord now turns up the volume really high on the radio and reminds them of his immutability. There's another good word you can store away for lunch this afternoon, or God's unchangeable character. He says in verse 6, For I, the Lord, let's say it together. For I, the Lord, do not change. One of the most precious and dear promises we have in Scripture are right here. It's repeated in the Old Testament and in the New. Is that our God does not change. Though his dealings with people may change in accordance with whatever purposes he has, his character, his heart, his wisdom, his power, his justice, his love never changes. Why is that so sweet for sinners like you and me? We got to turn back the wheel and quote some A.W. Pink for you. He cannot change for the better. For he is already perfect, and being perfect, he cannot change for the worst. Trusting God is the only stable relationship you will ever have in this life. Trusting God is the only stable relationship you will ever have in this life. People will be faithless to you. People will let you down, and you will let them down too. And even if you are married to a wonderful spouse or you have wonderful children, one day the Lord's going to take them from you and it's just you and Him. And it will be enough because the Lord does not change. He never changes. That means He's always perfect. Unlike Israel, who have been faithless and inconsistent and wayward for generations, verse 7 says, God had remained faithful. God didn't go anywhere. He was steadfast in his marriage vows. He was committed to his promises. The Lord had never changed. He was always the anchor of hope for their soul. So what does God do next? To prepare them for spiritual renewal or spiritual Revival. He calls them to repent. Look at verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Brothers and sisters, God never sends spirit birth revival in our lives apart from genuine, heartfelt repentance. God never sends spirit birth revival in our lives apart from genuine, heartfelt repentance. They were in denial. They didn't even realize that they had drifted that far. When the Lord said, return to me, they're thinking, for what? What did I do? I mean, I'm not perfect, but my record's pretty squeaky clean, I thought. 
You see, the scriptures teach us that before something can be brought to life, it first has to die. In other words, spiritual apathy, spiritually ungodly attitudes, unrepentant and ungodly leaders, man-made traditions that undermine God's word, all need to be burned up. They need to die. They need to meet a funeral of death before you can experience a wedding of revival. You see, revival is the kind gift of God whereby he pours out his spirit. He renews our affections for him and then reforms our worship to him. Revival is where God's people on earth get a foretaste of life in heaven. God's people on earth get a foretaste of life in heaven. So what does God call them to repent of? Well, he rebukes them for their stinginess and deceitful handling of resources and blessings. He actually charges them with temple tax evasion. They had robbed God, the Lord says. Now in verses 8 to 12, a key aspect of the temple worship and the lives of the people, God now exposes. And he brings out specifically, did you notice the phrase, tithes and contributions. That word contribution could also be translated as offerings in some of your Bibles. Uh, The word tithe just simply means a tenth or 10%. Uh, The tithe was very similar to how we might even pay taxes today in our government. What I mean by that is this, that the tithe was given both to the community at large, but also to the temple, the place of worship. When the tithe was received from all that God had blessed them with, they would place it in a storehouse. Verse 10, the tithe in their day would be used for several purposes, to provide for the priest, to provide for the temple sacrifices and other related materials for Israel's worship, and to provide for the economically impoverished in the community. People like the widow, the fatherless, and the sojourner. You see, Israel in the Old Testament was a theocratic nation. That means God ruled directly over Israel in a unique, special, and personal way that he did not relate to with other nations. So, when you read the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, The tithe, if you read everything on it, would have accumulated somewhere closer to 20% of the people's income when it was all said and done. When you tally up all the feast days and every three and seven years, it would be around actually to 20 to 23% to get more technical. You'll also notice that the tithe was centered upon the agricultural society of which they lived. That's why the Lord speaks about food being put back into his house, verse 10. And you should also notice the language of curses and blessing, verses 9 to 11. Uh, This is really God hearkening back to the blessings and cursings of the old covenant in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. So in summary, if they obey God, they trusted his goodness, if they kept the covenant, they would receive covenantal blessings. For example, Leviticus 23, verses 3 to 5. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, 
and the trees of the field shall yield the fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. Deuteronomy 28, verses 11 and 12. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. So conversely then, if they disobeyed, if they became faithless, they began to yoke themselves with the abominable practices of the nations around them, the Lord would send a curse. He would dry up their piggy bank. He would turn off the sprinkler in heaven, and they would suffer famine, scarcity, sickness, defeat, and death. So God called them to put him to the test. Not to tempt God, because that's forbidden in Scripture. We know from Deuteronomy 6. But rather to take God at his word. Which is really the second point for our outline and a key lesson for us as a church family. Number two, God will be faithful, so prioritize his kingdom as first in your life. God will be faithful, so prioritize his kingdom as first in your life. See, Christians sometimes will disagree on whether the tithe we read about in Malachi 3 is binding on Christians to be kept today. The practice of tithing was modeled for us in two passages in Genesis. Genesis 14 with Abram, Genesis 28 with Jacob. A tithing is clearly prescribed and commanded in the law of Moses and then repeated in the prophets as we see in Malachi. And then even in Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees who, at least up until their day with the synagogue, continued to tithe. However, I personally don't believe Christians under the new covenant are given the same exact command today in the same way I don't believe the blessings and cursings are not upon us today. In Galatians 3, the Mosaic law, along with its covenantal blessings and covenantal cursings, were fulfilled ultimately in Christ. However, the Bible's still not silent in the New Testament on money and possessions. I do believe the scriptures teach in the New Testament how money or wealth or possessions and resources can be a revealer of our hearts. Our bank accounts can be spiritual x-rays for who we serve. How we spend money tends to show what we value. And what means the most to us? Did not Jesus say in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Apostle Paul warned against the love of money, which can be a root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, and instead, Christians should be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves and laying a good foundation for the future 
so that they may take a hold of what is truly life. But regardless of what your present conviction is on giving, I want to give you five what I call Pastor Blake out of my left pocket grab bag principles for financial stewardship. Number one, budget. Number two, examine. Number three, counsel. Number four, pray. Number five, invest. Number one, budget. Ask yourself, do I have a plan for how I spend and save money? What is my monthly income? What are my monthly expenses? How much debt do I have? How much am I considering to save for future needs? Budget. Number two, examine. Examine your priorities. Where's my top five expenses coming from? Does my current lifestyle reflect a kingdom first, eternal mindset? Am I trying to live a doctor's lifestyle on the salary of an entry-level factory worker? You need to always check what kind of lifestyle you're trying to live and instead think about how you can live within your means and to take care of those who depend upon you. Number three, counsel. Seek counsel and accountability from others. Include others that you respect and how they steward their finances. Uh, Sit down with a pastor or a counselor. If you're under 40 and still have children in the home, maybe consider speaking with an older couple who's raised children, who are empty nesters and have a little extra one to five dollars here and there, and they can talk to you about traps to avoid and ways you can spend your money better. Number four, pray. Ask God for wisdom. It's his money to begin with. The Lord knows how his resources can be best used. If you want to study a book further on the topic of money, Randy Alcorn's book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Money, Possessions, and Eternity. He has a really good resource on this. And I would think it would be really good for God just to convict us, convict all of us, to search our hearts where greed or stinginess has taken root so that we might give more generously to his work. And number five, invest. Invest generously and cheerfully by faith. Don't read Malachi 3 this afternoon with a name it, claim it lens. That if you give $10 to Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, voila, a hundred bucks shows up in your mailbox on Wednesday. Don't do that. Preachers take Malachi 3 and torture the thing with their Baptist congregation. And I just want to throw the sermon in the dump. God does not promise to give you tenfold of your $1 bill. Benny, Hen, and the rest of them are going to give an account before Jesus. Jesus doesn't need our money. He owns the joint. (laughs) He's the most wealthy being on the planet, in all the universe. But resources and money are one of the ways we can participate in what God is doing in the world. I would say this. Our hearts follow where our money goes, whether it's little or much. So what does your current pattern of giving, in particular to maybe the local church, say about your priority of God's kingdom in your life? We conclude, after now looking at God's faithfulness, we should put his kingdom first, 
by turning to the last dispute God confronts with his people. This dispute basically goes like this. In the end, when it's all said and done, when we're standing before Jesus, when we're given the account for our life, is it really worth it to serve God? Was it really worth it? Well, in verses 13 to 15, that's exactly the complaint they raise. Verse 14, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? But this is where the end of the sermon is sweet. Sweeter than the sweet tea you're going to drink shortly. Look at verses 16 to 17. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. This is our final point, point number three. God will remember all who served him, so serve him faithfully all your days. God will remember all who served him, so serve him faithfully all of your days. You see, the people in Malachi's day was a mixed bunch. Many would reject the Lord of hosts and become spiritually hardened. But some, the ones who heard their shepherd's voice, responded in repentance and faith, and they feared the Lord. They esteemed his name. They were proud to be one of his children. They recognized their sin. They confessed it to the Lord, and they revealed that serving God is worth it because God does eternally good to those who trust him. Brothers and sisters, many churches are unhealthy because God, as he reveals himself, is not the center for why they exist. CCBC, Malachi should be a timely word for us as we peer into next year. Is the greatness of God and the beauty of Christ the chief end for why we exist? Beloved, we should all be constantly speaking to one another, verse 16 says, to stir up one another, to encourage one another, so that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Maybe you're here today and you've been looking at your life and wondering, why on earth am I here? I can tell you this. There is no greater way to spend your life than serving this great God. You see, the judgment that Israel was warned about, this judgment of fire, would eventually fall upon a sacrifice that was unblemished perfect. He was and remains the firstborn among many brothers. In fact, it was a sacrifice that God himself sent into this world of sin to die as a substitute 
in our place. God's wrath was poured out on his one and only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of this crooked world. His sufferings, he says in Luke 12, was a baptism of fire. A baptism of suffering. He was in the hottest furnace that any human being will ever be put in. The wrath of Almighty God poured upon the perfect Son of God. His sufferings would climax to the cross, providing us the covering we would need not to be punished by this eternal fire. He rose from the dead. Jesus got up. He showed himself as conquering death, passing through that fire. And now he ascends to the right hand of his heavenly father and he promises he will return again. Brothers and sisters, the return of Christ for his church is what we are living for. That's why you and I serve. That's why you and I persevere. That's why you and I help each other fight to the end. Because Peter says in 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. For those of us who are trusting Christ, our works that are done in his name, listen, will be remembered on that day. Did you notice that phrase in verse 16? The book of remembrance. When I was a kid, kids, do you collect trading cards? I used to collect trading cards, primarily sports cards. And when I had crummy cards that got bent, I just tossed them out. Up, that was no good. Up, that was no good. Oh, yeah, he stinks. Nope, no good. But there were some cards that I kept and I protected. And I put them in these soft sleeves. And the more valuable the cord became, I would wrap them in harder cases. I did that, maybe because my brother would ruin them, but I did that primarily because I wanted to preserve it. I wanted to put it in my card folder. I wanted to show them off. I wanted them to be protected and remembered. Brothers and sisters, Every child that belongs to God, who puts their faith and trust in Christ, will have every act of faith and obedience brought out of God's book. No mentioning of sin. No mentioning of failures. No mentioning of regrets. No mentioning of bad mistakes you've made. At the cross, he paid for that. He remembers your sin no more But on the day of judgment, he remembers every, even weak faith you've ever had in his name. The times you shared the gospel but were rejected, he remembers. The times you prayed for your child's salvation, he remembers. The times you persevered through persecution, he remembers. The times you said no to a sinful temptation and yes to Jesus, he remembers. The times you gave financially to your church, out of a heart of faith, 
he remembers. The times you led your spouse or children and family worship, he remembers. The times you blessed your enemy instead of cursing them, he remembers. The times you spoke openly about Christ to your friends at school, he remembers. The time you were made fun of and mocked for your faith, he remembers. The times you sold excess goods to bless another family in need, he remembers. The times you wrote an encouraging letter to a weary believer, he remembers. The time you visited a widow in their time of distress, he remembers. The times you sang his praises even when you didn't feel like it, he remembers. The times you led that prayer group, he remembers. The times you prepared a Bible study or preached a sermon, he remembers. The times you trusted God even when your plans did not work out, he remembers. The times you ran the soundboard, cleaned the church toilet, secured the church building, prepared the church ordinances, managed the church finances, prepared the church's minutes, and served in the children's ministry. He remembers. The time you believed God at his word and helped plant a local church, he remembers. Beloved, those who are trusting Christ, one day all pain and suffering you and I have encountered will one day be healed and supernaturally transformed at the twinkling of an eye. All injustices will be brought to justice by the Lord of hosts. As we read in Malachi 4, 2 and 3, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. We need to remember that eternity is before us, and this will spur us on. Thomas Watson once said, Every day, think upon eternity. Eternity to the godly is a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. Oh, I beseech you, my brethren, every day, spend some time thinking upon eternity. The serious Thoughts of an eternal condition would be a great means to promote holiness. Did we think seriously and solemnly of eternity? We should never overvalue the comforts of the world, nor overgrieve at the crosses of the world. Affliction may be lasting, but it is not everlasting. Our sufferings here on earth are not worthy to be compared to an eternal weight of glory. Eternity is before us. What will God's book of remembrance say about you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not change. And it's in this promise we have hope. You will deal with all sin. You will be faithful. And you will remember what your children have done in your name. Lord, I do pray for anyone here today who's 
been made restless about their eternal state, Lord, we pray you would draw them to yourself and they would see Jesus as beautiful and their eternal treasure. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.